Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome back to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodik. I am Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Yugal Dolkis Kulboy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pawnings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% um, carbon footprint, because you're all over the world and Joel is in Greta Thunberg's homeland <laughs> i'm not actually i thought you were in sweden where no, in the world are you joel i am back in copenhagen i was in sweden yesterday ah and where in the world are you sadia i'm uh, i'm far away i'm in islamabad in pakistan yep and where what are you world, doing there right where in the world are you first we need to know well i'm in london <laughs> in my office so i am you know really preserving my carbon footprint while you guys just fly around the world that's true. That that is true. But I'm afraid I, I could have not made it to um to my meetings here in time if I had walked or taken a boat, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I would have wanted to, but I couldn't. I'm it, depend, it depends on when you start, Shadia. It all depends on when you start. Yeah, it's just time to It's true. It's true. Well, considering yeah, I mean I don't want to sound like overly busy. I'm sure everyone is, but it's it's becoming a bit um like we say in French, n'importe quoi. So in terms of the traveling in the past couple of weeks, because um, I was in Edinburgh a couple of days ago, and now I'm here. And I have to be in Paris in two days. So it's, yeah, carbon footprint. I mea culpa. Well, before we kick off this episode, let us just thank our sponsors. This season is running on the pure steam of the Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as the IA Reporter. It's an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, it has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Their team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analyses, as well as an investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. So to find out why all the leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to iReporter, visit iareporter.com. Um, Yay, you, uh, Sadia, hasn't been in London that much. You're in London, Brian. There's there's news out of London that occupies the entire arbitration community. This uh, case in the in the Supreme Court about multiple appointments. Have you guys been following this? No, been like the Halliburton. Yes, the Halliburton case. Exactly, yeah. which saw uh, both the LCIA and the ICC, represented by famous English lawyers, intervening in a case to explain that. And they don't necessarily think it's a great idea for arbitrators to have multiple appointments by the same parties, which the English courts so far have seemed to be fine with, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because those judges yeah. are going to become arbitrators soon? or uh, Always the cynic. Always the cynic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it concerned a really specific like insurance matter as well, I think. I mean, specific in the sense that it's not 
you know, just because we talk a lot about investment arbitration on this podcast and also other big commercial arbitration, I think this is this is maybe industry specific for that one. And I mean that I think there's been discussion about how it was difficult to, you know, or or it's it's usual in this industry to have repeat appointments. Right, um, and that I would, there are in addition to the LCIA and the ICC intervening to sort of express the the, the consensus view in international commercial arbitration. There were also other institutions intervening with a different kind of approach. I think one can say, and they are, I think, the ones that we never talk about, i.e., this these specific. Uh, industry-specific institutions where it's much more common that you have multiple appointments because the pool is so small and the area is so specific. And I should have looked up what, but it's, you know, the, the grain trade organization. Grain and feed. <laughs> yeah, the grain and feed trade Thank association. Thank you for saving GAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> GAFTA. The GAFTA and the London Maritime Arbitrators Association, which Very I... Good. on. Yeah, I honestly didn't even know existed until I moved to the UK, which shows how clueless I was before I moved to London. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, we can all plead ignorance on this because uh -huh. we aren't experts on maritime law or grain trade. <laughs> yeah, speak no, for yourself. No, we're, not. Well, that... we're not. <laughs> That sounds uh, like an interesting development. I, it ha I haven't heard the rumblings on the streets of London here, I have to say, but um, that really goes to our past episode with Double Hatting. So we are on the pulse, aren't we? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to be that guy raining on the parade, but this isn't, strictly speaking, Double Hatting. It's not that an arbitrator is doing other things than being an arbitrator. It's that an arbitrator is doing too much of the same thing. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, no, it's true, but it's it's related to you know an arbitrator doing too many things, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That so is the 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 control of arbitrator appointment, and I think the rationale is how can you you know repeat be a repeat appointee on on cases that are similar and and still remain independent and and impartial. Um, also, right? yeah, and I also, think I think the, I think the um, the issue of non-disclosure as well is sort of the, one of the key legal issues here. That mm -hmm. uh, the the arbitrator in question says that he, I think it's a he, uh, didn't realize that he had to disclose a subsequent appointment in an already pending case. And one of the questions is, you know, to, to what, how far does the duty to disclose actually go? Yeah, it's interesting. They they talk about duty of disclosure. We so. He, he, like you mentioned, it's it's anonymous. We still don't know who that guy, who this person is. Actually, I don't know if it's a he or she, but we don't know who he is. He's M. He's mentioned as M, Mr. M. Yeah, I read a report somewhere in, a, I think, a US space. No, no, actually, it was in a WhatsApp thread that someone mentioned that everyone in London knows who this person is. But, well, Brian is ignorant and you aren't I, technically in London, Sadia. So I guess you're both excused. <laughs> Am I just getting insulted in this entire intro? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Let's, sorry. Let's um, move on. Uh, it's, it's, Sadia, it's, it's, I really it's, hope it's, you come back soon so we can not invite Joel to the next episode. Oh, I'm just, you know, we're fighting for the new, new chemistry with the new third co-host. You know, this is just human psychology. I, well, I want Sadia on my side so that we can bully you. I don't you. have to fight. It's quite natural. Uh, I'm not taking sides, guys. Joel, you got to move to London and stop those London jokes. That's what's going to happen, I think. This yeah. is like siblings, <laughs> you know, when it's just the two of you, we have to get along, and now we don't. So, guys, what are we what are we doing today? We are going to start are with an interview today? that Sadia, on her own, conducted. Sadia, who did you interview? 
Yes. So uh, while I was in uh, sorry, not Vienna, in um, in Edinburgh, I uh, interviewed Jaroslav Kurtna, uh, Jaroslav, sorry, Kurtna, who's a representative of the Czech Republic. So it's really exciting. We managed to have a state representative and he will give his perspective on ISDS reform. So he was attending the ancestral meetings and he was also at a conference in Edinburgh on a panel which was entitled How to Make Investment Arbitration Better. Um, so it's 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 really interesting. We talk about different topics, including the new treaty that has been signed, or at least under discussion between the EU members about termination of intra-UBAT. But I'm not going to say too much about it. Yes, tease everyone. Um, and then <laughs> we will uh, move on to the second segment, which will be um, denial of benefits. I have to say uh, already now it's a sensitive issue that affects one of my pending cases. So I will take it on the most objective plane and say already now that it does not reflect anything um, that my firm behind me stands for. It's just for purely discussion purposes. Um, and then the third uh, topic will be the happy fun time topic, which relates to two of us, um, Sadia and I, which me, which we talk about lateraling over between jurisdictions, not only lateraling between firms, but between jurisdictions. And I will, yep. as is customary, make the case that it might apply also to academics. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, interesting to note. Um, so that those are three topics. And oh. Before we move on to the first subject and the first interview, um, I w visited the International Arbitration Center here in London, which um, if our avid listeners will note, we talked about, we actually read a press release um, from the IAC themselves and kind of analyzed this new initiative. And the way that we had read the press release was that it was going to be this um, new institution with a list of arbitrators. Um, and it turns out, we slightly missed the mark. Maybe we misread or maybe it was uh, not entirely clear. But basically what um, happened when I went to go visit, I asked all the pressing questions like a good journalist and found out that it's not really a institution. It is more of a venue. So they're going to do they deal with a lot of different types of disputes, including family law disputes and divorce. So it's just it's a venue. But it is the Maserati of venues. It is the, like anything as a junior is like, gosh, I wish this venue had this is this venue has it. It has like. The breakout room looks like a Shangri-La, like presidential suite, with like you know <laughs> chefs and catering, and they've they have TVs in the breakout rooms that show what's happening in the hearing, which is actually very useful. They have oh, all yes. the recording like equipment decked out to the nines, um, and then they have like a venue upstairs for any meetings or whatever you want to have. But it's also offices for independent arbitrators, like a WeWork type of situation. So if an independent arbitrator is in London, has a hearing, et cetera, and needs to come in, find a desk, need printing, and doesn't have the luxury of the senior independent arbitrators of having a, a minion running around and doing that for them, they have this type of WeWork environment um, to kind of give them a place to hang their hat or double hat. Um, <laughs> if you will. So it was a, it was a great learning experience, um, you know, and we're not above it here on the ARB station to um, correct ourselves in any way. So that was interesting. Yeah, but um, let's was, not make a habit out of admitting when we're wrong, because then we'll have long intros for each episode. I mean, you guys were just you guys were just wrong because I was on the podcast, and so I couldn't <laughs> correct you then. That's what happened. Uh, <laughs> also, you're really alienating yourself in this episode. <laughs> 
<laughs> guess we all will stick together again. Um, on that, on that, that note, in this divisive panel, the arbitration station, let's move on to the interview. So hi everyone. So I'm in Edinburgh. Uh, I had the opportunity to attend the CR annual lecture, um, and the topic of the conference was how to make arbitration better. And um, it's very privileged to be on the panel that was entitled "How to Make Investment Arbitration Better." And I、uh, managed to get a guest here with me to speak about it even, you know, better than myself.、Um, and、uh, get, who are you? Can you introduce yourself? Hi Sadia, it's、uh, it's a pleasure to be here.、Uh, I'm Yaroslav Kudrina、uh, from the Ministry of Finance of the Czech Republic, and、uh, I work、uh, in the International Arbitration and Investment Protection Unit. Oh hi,、uh, well welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Can I can I call you Yarik? Is that okay? Oh、uh, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Yarik,、um, you've been involved with the Czech Republic, and I also actually saw you in Vienna.、So、you were there. All week、um, in October.、Um, I mean, can you、uh, tell our our listeners and tell me actually what is on the mind of the Czech Republic in terms of the reform ISDS? What are the key points that are of interest for you? Sure. So、uh, I think that、uh, it's funny that you know that the panel we just talked、uh, at here、uh, at Edinburgh was called "How to Make Investment Arbitration Better." A reform or revolution,、mm-hmm. and I think this title actually summarizes well a little bit the work、uh, of the working group three at、uh, Uncitral and the current、uh, what's called like the division between、uh, the the member states.、Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, I would say one group of states、uh, is more interested、uh, just like reforming certain procedural aspects, and then one group of states.、Uh, Uh, including the European Union and thus also the Czech Republic, wants a more structural reform, or you could, I guess, call it even a revolution. And、mm-hmm. this is like the multilateral investment court.、Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's a that's a major development actually for for the ISDS. And and if so, you mentioned the、um, the multilateral investment court, of course, which is which is a big development for the EU. Um, is there is there any other, and we can come back to that a bit later. Is there any other topic that、um, was discussed in Vienna that you were particularly interested in? Yes. So、um, in Vienna, we discussed、um, independence and impartiality of、mm-hmm. arbitrators、uh, with this、uh, new code of conduct, which,、right. uh, which will be prepared together、uh, by the Ancitral Secretariat and、mm-hmm. the Exit. Or which、uh, I think it will be a welcome development,、mm-hmm. and、uh, there was also a big discussion on the third party funding. Right.、Um, and third party funding is is one of the the things that that、um, you know, if I remember correctly, the Czech Republic was actually pretty vocal about. Right. I mean, this is something that is of interest to you. It definitely is, and、uh, I think、uh, even though that there were some. I would say more、uh, extremes views、mm-hmm. like、uh, you know right it should be completely unregulated or it should be like、uh, banned altogether.、Mm-hmm. I think generally the mem- the 
uh, states uh, at Ancestral agree that uh, some regulation is needed, mm-hmm. uh, at least uh, the disclosure for the conflict of interest uh, purposes. Mm-hmm. But I think from the point of view um, of the Czech Republic, and uh, here I should uh, just specify that um, the views expressed here are only mine and should not be attributed to the Ministry of Finance or the Czech Republic. Okay, well, not but <laughs> I'm I'm just talking from um, our experience mm-hmm. from the from the cases we had. Um, I think the third party funding um, in itself is not uh, the issue. I think the problem for us is uh, this fairness that if the you know the third party funder uh, puts the money in and the claimant wins, they get um, usually like, uh, you know, a lot of money back. Mm-hmm. But the problem for us is if uh, we win and we get uh, the costs awarded and then we have the claimant, which uh, is a shell company, uh, you know, we don't uh, get any money back and um, there is no way to get any recourse uh, against the third party funder. So is that something that you have tried to do in one of the cases? Was that an issue? Um, yes, yes. I mean, uh, we had now third party funding in a couple of cases. So the other, where uh, the other side is, is funded by a third party funder. Exactly. Right? And, exactly. Did, and just, I mean, I don't know if, if, you know, I can give a little bit more detail about that, but I, it's interesting to know because we, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in Vienna about third party funders and there was an appeal actually that was made at some point was saying we have no data on third party funding. So in those cases where you were involved, did the claimant, were you, were they asked to volunteer the information on third party funding or whether or not they were funded or, um, or did they just say it, you know, themselves that they were funded? How did you find out that they were funded? Well, we, we, um, in some cases they came forward, like in some cases we kind of like, uh, you requested to, it. Yeah, okay. to request it, the, the tribunal. Okay. Um, but, uh, basically, um, you know, at the moment, like the only way how to, uh, how to have the chance to like secure the money is to ask for the security for costs. Right. And, um, you know, that's, um, that's, uh, very, very difficult. And, um, uh, why is security for costs important for us is that, you know, when I look back to the cases like from 2010, mm-hmm. you know, we won, um, we won at least um, in 12 cases we won, we got awarded um, some costs. Mm-hmm. But from these 12 cases, in only four instances, the investors actually voluntarily paid the awarded costs. Really? So, you know, if I look back, like in these nine years, the unpaid costs amounted to over $9 million, mm-hmm. which uh, for a small country like ours, like it's, it's you know, a substantial amount of money, like it's uh, from public budget. So um, we definitely see it as an issue. So how is that linked with the third party funder issue? Just, I mean, how would you explain, how would you, is there a solution that has been put on the table about how to avoid these kind of situation where you you end up not having you know your costs back. Like, what's the link with the TPF? Well, um, I think um, the I think it's to answer your question. I think uh, we can first like look like what's the the current standard. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and the in the current situation, uh, the fact that uh, you have uh, um, and for example, a uh, impecunious claimant um, on its own, that's not the reason to get a security for cost. the The fact that you just have a third party funder is also uh, not uh, enough to get security for costs. Yes, exactly. But uh, I think like one welcome development uh, I have seen in the case law was um, the Garcia Armas versus Venezuela right. uh, decision um, from June 2018, mm-hmm. where um, basically the tribunal um, asked the state to make like the first showing of uh, claimant claimant's impecuniosity, but then it switched the burden of proof to claimant mm-hmm. uh, who um, had to show that it's, um, it has the ability to, to pay for the cost or it has right. the, the assets. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where like, the third party funding came into, into play mm-hmm. is that um, if you know, in that case the claimant had third party funding, but if the the tribunal said you know if the funder is willing to cap- cover the adverse costs, right? Or there would be the after the event insurance, you know that's that's fine. Uh, in that scenario, there is uh, there is no reason to to grant security for costs. Mm-hmm. But uh, in that case, uh, it was not the case. You just had an impecunious claimant. Mm-hmm. You had a third party funding, but the funder, um, you know, in the provisions like they did not uh, want cover, to cover the, the cost. Yeah. And uh, the tribunal said, well, you know, in like balancing like in we they decided that in that, those circumstances um granting the security for costs uh, was justified mm-hmm. and um uh, i think that uh, that's a balanced result uh. so in terms of regulation because we were talking about reform at vienna and um i understand of course exit is also in parallel um thinking about reforming its rules um with respect to that specific question maybe not security for cost but at least the third party funder um what what are the key developments that um were discussed in vienna to address these issues and that are going to be discussed at exit and that you think are you know developments that you at least want to support as the czech republic yes yeah i think um the exit um secretariat already did a lot of work uh, in this respect and uh like now we have like a working paper free um yeah and uh it will be discussed in dc uh next week mm-hmm. and uh you know i i would say that the the proposed exedural amendments uh in relation to third party funding and security for costs they are not revolutionary but it's a welcome codification mm-hmm. of the current practice so like what do we have there um the new they have a now new rule which will require a disclosure of third party funding okay. which i i think that's that's great because you will already like avoid like any first like discussion like looking yeah. for it in you so, know public domain or so disclosure of identity or terms of engagement like is there a discussion um, on the scope of disclosure it's only uh disclosure that there is a third party funding oh, okay. and uh, you know the name of the entity okay. for the conflict uh, okay. of interest okay. purposes mm-hmm. but uh, I think that's definitely um, welcome 
because uh, if you remember uh, in Vienna at Uncitral when the PCA was giving uh, actually the statistics yes. from yes. the cases, uh-huh. right? Like I think they said that um, from like the 230 um, cases they had, they had the 18 where there was a third party funding. Yes. But I think that it, they said that I think like only three of them there was like a voluntary disclosure that yes. most of them like the the uh, respondent found out uh, in um, like uh, you know when it was like pub- publicly traded companies mm-hmm. like they found like some information mm-hmm. publicly available that there right. was a third party funding so I think it's it's a welcome development of course yeah um, and uh, yeah the so disclosure is one disclosure is one and on security for costs uh, um, you might recall that currently in the exit uh, arbitration rules mm-hmm. there is no any express provision uh, which led to some debates yes. um, in the past mm-hmm. so now uh, there will be a new uh, express rule which okay. will uh, recognize the tribunal's power to issue an order for security for costs okay so there is a specific reform on security for costs which is really interesting yeah mm-hmm. yes um, and if you look closer on what that rule says, um, it says that the tribunal will have to consider all relevant circumstances. Mm-hmm. And uh, those will include the party's ability mm-hmm. and willingness you know, to comply with an adverse decision on costs. Mm-hmm. And also the impact of providing security for costs to parties' ability to pursue its case. Mm-hmm. So I think it's generally the access to justice yeah. uh, okay. concerns, and uh, and finally, like generally, the conduct of the of the parties. So that could under this could come the umbrella of you know the third party funding arrangement, for example. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think what's great is that in this last working paper, mm-hmm. uh, they um, added a provision. Which uh, expressly mentions third-party funding that it uh, may be considered as an evidence mm-hmm. of uh, some of these factors I mm-hmm. just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, they say that on its own, it's not enough to justify, um, you know, granting security for costs. Mm-hmm. All right. No, 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 that's a very, uh, very interesting development. If, if I may, I'm just going to switch gears on another topic that has been um, bothering me and bothering a lot of people actually since a couple of months. And, and especially since I think um, just recently on 24th October, there's been a declaration that was made by the European Commission um, that was kind of reiterating um, and confirming what the January declaration of the European member states was, in essence, was we are getting rid of the intra-EU BITs. Now, can you tell us what's going on? I mean, is there in the declaration it was said that there was a treaty that was signed by the member states and uh, um, our generous sponsors, our reporter actually um, published the a draft of, of the, one of the treaties, I imagine, that is in discussion between the parties. Um, yeah, what's going on? Can you give us a little bit more information? <laughs> well, um, I think it... Uh doesn't come as a surprise because as you said, uh, right after the ACMA judgment, we had uh, the January declarations and the member states said that they are committed uh, to terminate these intra-UBITs. Yes. So um, after some negotiations, um, Mm -hmm. we came to an agreement on the text. 
Okay. So, so you know, nothing was signed yet, but at least on the expert level, like the the text of the treaty, yeah, was uh, was agreed uh, upon. And um, so, what was it? Great. I mean, can you tell us what are the key like points that are that have been <laughs> agreed between the parties? I mean, of course, termination of VITs, but what does that mean? Well, I think you just said it. the The main effect uh, yeah. of this treaty is to terminate um, the BITs between the the contracting parties here, okay. the, the member states who will sign it. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I should add that. Uh, it also um, counts on terminating uh, the treaties and the sunset clauses. So no more sunset clauses. No more sunset clauses. So, okay. <laughs> so just for, um, again, can you just briefly explain what a sunset clause is and, and what that means specifically for those treaties? Uh, sure, sure. So, um, you know, these uh, BITs, right, they give... Mm-hmm. Um, substantive protections to the investors Mm -hmm. as well as the access to investment arbitration and uh, usually at the end of the treaty you find a provision which says that if one of the contracting parties one of the states um, uh, terminates the treaty Mm -hmm. um, unilaterally the um, the investor the investors can kind of use the treaty for another period of time usually it's like 10 or 15 years right so um i think i think the aim of these clauses was to provide the extra certainty in the case of uh like unilateral withdrawal from treaty yeah but uh, given that here it will be by mutual agreements the the states agreed to also terminate to terminate uh, the, the sunset clauses. clauses. So it's interesting because in, in the Czech Republic's experience, actually, um, you, when you had terminated a BIT before, uh, you elected to first modify the sunset clause and then to terminate it. And, and I mean, I, I'm not necessarily cha- saying that would change much, but that's not, that's not what's planned. What is planned is to terminate the treaties and then there's just a confirmation in the treaties agreement that the sunset clause is invalid. Is, is that my, is my understanding correct? Yes. Okay. All yes, right. Yes, it is. So no more intra-UBITs. What's, Norm- go- what's going on with the existing cases? Well, uh, I think uh, that here it's interesting to look that um, the treaty distinguishes uh, between concluded pending and new arbitrations. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look closer um, at that, uh, basically the treaty does not have any effect on the arbitrations concluded before the ACMA judgment was rendered. So uh, concluded before ACMA judgment. Which means, okay. yeah, before March uh, 6, 2018. Right. So, you know, these cases, like, uh, it's... It's it's done. We will not reopen the past. Thank you. <laughs> <I think. laughs> um, now, for the cases pending at the time of the ACMA judgment and uh, not decided in favor of the state before the entry into force of this termination treaty, mm-hmm. the treaty gives investors uh, some options. So one option is that they can mediate dispute through a special procedure uh, described in the treaty. Okay. 
And the other option is that it gives investors access to national courts mm -hmm. to make claims under national law in regard to the measures contested in the pending arbitrations. And what's interesting is that it gives you this possibility even if the time limits um, in the national law for bringing such, action, such actions would uh, have already expired. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's one condition that, uh, that the investor did not try previously to challenge the measure in the national courts. Okay, but on the basis of the substantive protections of the BIT or on the basis of the local legislation? No, no, it's uh, on the basis of the local legislation. Okay, so, so when we say there's no more intra-UBIT, it's obviously not just the dispute clause, like in, you know, because ACMIA, just to remind, you know, just give a little bit of background, ACMIA just said that the dispute clause was invalid, right? Was mm -hmm. contrary to EU law. It didn't go into the topic of our substantive obligations also contrary to EU law. But the conclusion was the BIT is invalid, right? Um, and here, when you say the intra-EU, the more intra-EU, the consequences, of course, you can't go to arbitration, but also you can't, you can't use the basis of, of the substantive protections even to go to a different different adjudicator, correct? Is my understanding correct? It is, it is. Um, and again, it might not be so surprising if you look in the past that uh, you might recall that uh, the European Commission mm -hmm. started infringement proceedings in the past, yes. at least against five member states in relation to the substantive provisions correct. of the treaties. Yeah. So um, and for that reason, you know, and even though it's true that uh, this treaty and this preamble says that it's done without the, uh, without prejudice to the question of incompatibility of the substantive yeah. provisions, mm -hmm. um, exactly for the reason you said that, um, you know, the CGEU has never, like, has not ruled on this issue. But given that we consider that the treaties are terminated, uh, the consensus was that uh, the investors uh, from the pending cases, they can do the claims on their, only under like national law basis. Okay. So what's going on with ECT cases? I mean, obviously there's been a disagreement between um, European member states as to the scope of, of their declarations, even in January. So I imagine this disagreement is still happening right now. I mean, is, this, is there more clarity on the uh, applicability of the ACMIA decision on ECT cases? Well, it's, it's correct what, what you said. Um, I mean, the European Commission and the majority of uh, the member states, including the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. uh, expressed their, their view um, in January that the ECT is not applicable in mm -hmm. TriU. But, uh, but you are right that there was uh, a number of um, member states uh, which did not want to prejudge that question. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for the purposes of the termination treaty, I can say that um, the aim was that... Uh, as many as possible, um, as as many as uh, possible member states signed this treaty. Mm -hmm. So to achieve uh, larger consensus, uh, this issue of ECT was left out uh, at the end. Okay. So this uh, this treaty um, 
uh, on its own does not uh, bear on the question. Okay, so you want to address the question later. Yes. Save it for later. <laughs> exactly. And it's actually written in the preamble that the, that this the question will, will be, be we be dealt in the in the future. Okay. And uh, I mean when you say like when there will be more clarity, I think um it I mean um you know it looked like the question might get to CGEU because um mm-hmm. I recall that uh, when the Spain uh, attempt to annul um the award in the Novenergia case, um Spain asked the Swedish Court of Appeal to seek a preliminary ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, on the ECT's compatibility with EU law. Yeah. But uh, last April, the Swedish court refused to do so mm-hmm. because uh, it decided that it did not see at that point any reason to, to obtain such a preliminary ruling from the CGEU. So um, uh, we we will see if uh, perhaps if the case goes before the Supreme Court, like the the Spain will try to uh, ask the court again to send a preliminary question. Does the does the Czech Republic have a position on that on the ECT? Um, I mean, as uh, as I said, we we joined mm-hmm. the the January declaration, um, the the one which was uh, yeah exactly signed by one. the most of the mm-hmm. countries. Which uh, and you didn't have any reservation on the ECT. No, 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 no. Okay, all right. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot happening. Um, so we talked about third-party funding, of course, the the amendments, of course, the termination of the intra-UBITs, um, the changes in the exit rules. Um, and at the very beginning of, of talking to you, you also mentioned the international court, um, multilateral investment court, um, MIC, some people call it ICS. Um, that's also a development that you're looking forward to? Yes, um, and um, it will be discussed actually uh, in in detail at the next uh, yeah. ancestral meeting mm-hmm. in Vienna in mm-hmm. in January, where like the the whole week will be devoted to discussing the the MIC, um, as you said, mm-hmm. and or like the the appellate mechanism. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's also uh, that that the new uh, appellate mechanism. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, there are different options which were put forward at the mm-hmm. working group um, and um, I'm looking forward to that discussion. You're looking forward to that discussion. Is there any any advanced thing that you could share with us about what um, maybe you know the Czech Republic's views are in particular or more generally speaking what the tendency is between states as to whether or not to support that project? I think um, that uh, at the beginning it was presented a lot as just like the the EU project yeah. but I think uh, it's um, getting more and more traction as the the work of the uh, working group continues mm-hmm. um, and I think there are like more um, states which uh, express their interest into into this um, um, solution okay um, which I think would be revolutionary it, it will be a difference for sure. It's not the same as the existing system. I mean, just for the fact that we're talking here about a permanent court, first of all, that's a big change. Um, with arbitrator slash judges, judges, I think we're going to call them judges that are appointed by the arbitrators exclusively, right? Um, by the states. Oh, by the, sorry. Yes, yes. of course, by, yes. the, by the states. Sorry, that's exactly what I meant. Um, and And then the new... 
the extra new stage to that all is, is the appellate mechanism, right? To have a second stage of, of, uh, of the proceedings, which you don't currently have under the exit system. Now, let me ask you this, and, and maybe we can, we can stop you know, here. Uh, but I'm just interested in, in hearing your views about this. So when you are in Vienna, and of course you're in your capacity as a state representative, you are talking about the reform of ISDS, generally speaking, and we're talking about the court and, and everything that it entails. I mean, surely you must also have in your, you know, in, in your reflection the, the, um, the position of the Czech Republic's investors as foreign investor in other states, right? I mean, it must be a balanced approach that you're taking. So, so you know, can you, can you, it's just because there's been a lot of discussion on how the state are speaking only from the state perspective and not from the foreign investors perspective. Um, no, you are right. Um, and um, I should have probably said it, but um, in uh, our arbitration department, we do both the investment disputes, but we also negotiate the BITs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you negotiate uh, the BITs, you always have um, kind of like it's a sword and a shield. Uh, mm -hmm. You have like these two perspectives. You mm -hmm. try to think about um, the cases which might be brought against us, but you also think about protecting um, our investors. Yeah. So I, and uh, I think that you want to achieve certain balance. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that on a, like in a bigger picture, you, I think you might, you might say that we see certain like a general, like a rebalancing, like the, I think the states have this feeling that, uh, and you know, uh, at least the perception that uh, mm -hmm. the system uh, was not um, at the right balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we might see a certain shift like towards the, the state. Um, and I mean, we can see it, for example, you know, in the, all the new EU uh, agreements, you know, yes. like you, the, the standards are a little bit uh, like much more defined, you know, the FET especially is yes. usually a little bit like uh, kind of cut down. I mean, we can see it in the, I call it like NAFTA two, mm -hmm. right? Like the 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 standards, like or even like the even access to arbitration is actually uh, much more limited than in the past. Um, and also in the substantive obligations, in right? the substantive yeah. obligations. So there's a change in 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 having not only yeah. giving states more right to regulate, but also more generally opening the possibility of of counterclaims. Correct. I mean, that's mm. have you? There's we've been this seen this tendency in some of the new generation treaties. Yes, um, I mean, and you know, the, all the um, like protection of human rights and environment, exactly. uh, corporate social responsibility. Mm. But uh, um, going back to Mick, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that we hear a lot about um, investors not happy that you know they will not be too, able to choose uh, their arbitrator. Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, you it's, can it's understand a, that you can understand. I, I can understand well. it, but you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, already the I guess the the new Dutch model BIT, for example, also moved away from this, right? They mm -hmm. say that the uh, the appointing authority uh, would choose all the free arbitrators. 
So um, I mean, if it's an appointing authority, then then again, that that kind of creates the level playing field, right? I mean, it's not it's neither the state or the investor. Then it's an appointing authority. But if it's only states and not the investor, that's I think what people are a bit angry well, or upset uh, about. I mean, look, I mean, you know, when you sue the state, like domestic, like the state, in a way, you can say yeah. like they choose the the judges. Yeah. Uh, as and well, and I think the the what's more important is that right you don't have only the judges chosen by the state mm-hmm. against which which you go. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, like similar, like international court of justice. So I. Th- right. I, I I think that that's on its own um, is uh, like it should not. I don't think it should be like such a big deal. Okay. Um, but I think we need to look at some other positive. Uh, Changes which the multilateral investment court could bring, kind of uh, resolving some of these um, conflict of interest, like double hatting issues. Yes. Um, as well as the um, consistency of the uh, decisions, which mm-hmm. is uh, something we have heard a lot at the on central. And which is something that would be welcome both for states and for investors. Exactly. Right. Okay. On this positive note, I'm trying to see <laughs> a little lining out of this. Listen, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was extremely insightful um, to have someone, um, you know, from uh, from a state perspective come in and give us their views. So thanks a lot. And uh, you've got a lot of work to do in the next couple of weeks and next couple of months. So good luck with that. And we will be following the changes uh, closely. <laughs> thank you, Sadia. It was a pleasure of being here. <laughs> thank you very much. And we are on to our second uh, segment of this episode, which has to do with the denial of benefits. Have you guys ever come across denial of benefits before in your careers? I have actually recently. I've been looking into that as well. Um, yes. Also, oh, so listen yes. carefully. I haven't worked as much as you guys have, but I, I have dealt with the Energy Charter Treaty a lot. So I know uh, about denial of benefits in that context, but otherwise I am right. ignorant. Which Karina Baltog, a friend of the podcast, has written a great article on that. Um, she co-authored it, so I don't want to cut out the other author. Um, but the ECT is quite unique, which... Wait, is quite unique? Is that pastel? Is that quite unique? It's not the most uniquest. Um, but the ECT has a particular language compared to the other treaties that have denial of benefits clauses. So I'm gonna, actually going to be talking about that and doing a bit of a comparison with a not too often cited uh, multilateral treaty, the CAFTA, because the PACRIM um, case versus PACRIM versus El Salvador has um, kind of a good run through of a denial of benefits claim. But the the thing to keep in mind throughout this whole episode is that each treaty is very particular, A, in the way that they've defined the denial of benefits provision, but also in how they determine um, substantial business activities, if that's even required by the investor, and the nationality of the investor, because that really relates to who owns and controls the um, investor, if it is a corporate entity or an enterprise. And so depending on how the and the term investor or the term national is defined can change whole, wholly the analysis. So keep that in mind if you're ever attacking this um, 
this type of issue. But I had never attacked this issue before. So I was a bit of a fish out of water when I was doing my initial research. But these provisions, you know, when we talk about when bilateral investment treaty agreements were coming into play in the 80s and the 90s, there was, you know, discussions of this denial of benefits clause already back in the 50s. Um, where there was one scholar that noted that the recent treaty signed to the United States indicate that the possibility of a free ride by third country interests um, is one of the was one to be guarded against. So this free ride that he was talking about is exactly what the denial of benefits clause seeks to prevent, which is um, to prevent third parties from treaty shopping, essentially. So you, you have multinational corporations that are being structured to take advantage of um, certain favorable taxes or dispute resolution benefits um, without actually assuming any of the obligations under the treaty. So you have these, you know, multi-headed dragons that can kind of choose wherever they want to go. And in order to prevent that, a state can say, hey, you're actually not the national of this country um, that should get protections under this treaty. And therefore, we should be able to deny you benefits. So that's kind of okay. how the denial benefits clause kind of surfaced and got and became justified. Um, and it m maintains reciprocity of the benefits while excluding shell companies from recovering treaty provisions. So it also um, prevents companies that have no operations, not necessarily a multi-headed dragon, but just a empty shell from um, getting protection under a treaty when actually the beneficial owners come from other countries. Um, and, you know, Dolter and Troy have commented that it's not necessarily illegal or unethical because clearly they are just abiding by the textual provisions of the BIT, um, but they're really undesirable and take advantage of the appropriate measures that um, are against them. So this came up, and a lot of BITs contain these provisions, the 2012 model US BIT, um, as Joel says, the Energy Charter Treaty contains a clause, um, specifically in the non-application of part three of that treaty, so that's something to uh, keep in mind. Um, but anyway, as I said, there's important differences in the context, in the wording, and then subsequently in the effect. So <clears throat> jumping to the uh, CAFTA, uh, treaty and the denial of benefits provision in that treaty, you have Article 10.12, which says a party may deny the benefits of this chapter to an investor of another party that is an enterprise of such other non-party, that is an enterprise of such other non-party, own or control the enterprise and the denying party. Um, oh, and the denying party, A, does not maintain diplomatic relations with the non-party, B, adopts or maintains measures with respect to the non-party or person of the non-party that prohibit transactions with that enterprise. Um, and then two, that this denial of benefits, and this is kind of like an, a, an offshoot of the analysis, is um, that it's subject to, art, to other articles in the multilateral treaty, namely Article 18.3 on the notification and provision of information. So how do you notify of the denial of benefits? Mm -hmm. And 20.4 is consultations, which I'll talk about later, which basically says once you have once a state may think that they can deny benefits, there has to be some sort of consultation period between the sovereigns um, or the eight government agencies within that sovereign to talk about whether they actually can deny benefits. Um, so if we look to what the tribunal said in PACRIM v. El Salvador, they analyzed the denial benefits clause solely by using a treaty interpretation um, of the VCLT, Article 31. Um, while both parties urged the tribunal to reference past tribunals' treatment of the denial benefits clause under other treaties, such as the ECT, the tribunal refused to because the CAFTA's different wording, context, and effect. Um, so first, they looked to CAFTA's denial benefit clause, Article um, 1012, as I said. Um, 
And so the claimant was, let's just talk about the facts really quick so you guys understand what I'm talking about. Um, the claimant, Pac Rim, uh, was a Nevada corporation wholly owned by Pac Rim Mining Corporation, which was a, a company incorporated under Canadian law. Um, so you have a U.S. company owned by a kind of a, a parent company under in Canada. Uh, Pac Rim, the American company, raised claims on behalf of two of its subsidiaries, Sociedad Anonima de Capital Variable Dorado Exploraciones Sociedad, against the Republic of El Salvador for failing to grant exploitation permits in accordance with El Salvador's laws. Um, the crux of the denial of benefits claim, however, was that Pac Rim's corporate reorganization from Cayman Islands to the United States. Um, so conveniently, the United States and El Salvador are contracting parties to CAFTA, whereas the Cayman Islands and Canada are not. Hence, we have the issue here. Um, El Salvador argued that it could deny CAFTA protection to Pac Rim because it did not have, quote, substantial business activities in the United States, nor was it, quote, owned or controlled by the United States nationals. Um, as evident by the treaty provision itself, El Salvador argued that Pac Rim had to prove that one of these two elements was actually uh, that they did have a substantial activities or that it was owned or controlled by U.S. nationals in order to be eligible for CAFTA um, protection. So the first issue the tribunal addressed was whether Pac Rim had substantial business, business activities. Um, not all denial of benefits provisions has this requirement that there is substantial business activities. Some tribunals in jurisprudence say that it's kind of an implied um, term or applied um, element of a denial of benefits analysis because it goes to the heart of why denial of benefits clauses came into play, which is to avoid shell companies um, treaty shopping. Um, so the ECT, for example, is another example of a multilateral investment treaty that uses the substantial business activities language. Um, so the tribunal examined the facts in addition to PACRIM's own testimony in order to determine whether its business activities arose to the level of substantial. Um, I'm not going to go into the various facts of the case because no one cares because it will change in every case that you see from now on. Um, but the interesting to kind of questions that to ask yourself when you're analyzing this claim is, what is the timing of the substantial business in a host state? So, for example, like they're a company that has been operating for 20 years can have different operations over that span of 20 years. And what creates it substantial? Does it have to be continuous? What if there was, you know, an inter intermittent stopping of that substantial business activity? What What is the timing? Um, what is there's a change in the business? So does it substantial business activity need to be a certain um, specific activity that needs to be continuous or can that uh, can the business change and it would still follow under this uh, to not benefits clause? Um, and the last the last question to ask yourself is the relation to the is the substantial business activity related to the breach, the timing related to the breach, or is it related to the denial? So let's say after the breach, the activity of the business decreased, and then the, during the denial, they say there was no substantial business activity. Okay, well, does the reduction in the substantiveness of the commercial activity, um, can that be used against it, even though at the time of the breach, it was conducting um, substantial business in the host state? So again, I'm not going to answer those questions. There's something to think about. Um, the tribunal next turned to the second condition of the CAFTA denial of benefits clause, which is whether PACRIM was owned or controlled by persons of the United States. And this is determined by beneficial ownership. So, um, you know, the that company was owned by a Canadian mining company. 
But quite, and then I'm going to go back to questions to ask yourself, um, which I had to ask myself, which is how far up the chain do you go? So mm -hmm. although the Canadian company was the next level up, can you say, well, who is the beneficial owner of that Canadian company? And if that Canadian company is owned by 50 shareholders, some of which are corporate entities, do you then have to go up again until you find a beneficial owner? And that's to go back to my previous comment, which is um, how do you define nationals um, mm -hmm. according to the treaty? Some treaties define nationals to be enterprises and then you're fine. Um, but some of them actually require you to be a citizen of the state or an individual, a national meaning a natural person. So if that's the case, where does it stop? Um, Another question is, oh no, that was, that was my big question, uh, the definition of national. Um, and is it, is it, sorry, sorry to interrupt, is it also linked with the, with the definition of investment? I'm just thinking about it because um, the recent Dutch model BIT, for example, you know, proposed that now the definition of investment is substantially, where the substantial activity of the company is, actually. Uh, for I think it's the definition of investor. In fact, sorry. Um, right. So then you would you would also look then at the definition of investors. That that's what you're saying, right? For the exactly. interpretation of the denial of benefits. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but it's interesting if you say like the investment, because if the investment is in a third country, but there's substantial business activity is actually in the host state. For example, they're running all their offices and IT, but they're running an offshore. Um, drilling in Kazakhstan, but everything is mm -hmm. run out of Dubai, how would you determine the substantial business interests of the investor, um, mm -hmm. considering that the investment is in a different place? I don't know, something to, mm -hmm. to think about there. And then finally, the tribunal addressed the issue of timeliness. And this goes back to the notification and the consultation that I talked about earlier. Um, so if you look at the notification provision of CAFTA, um, it says, to the maximum extent possible, each party shall notify any other party with an interest in the matter of any proposed or actual measure that the party considers might materially affect the operation of this agreement or otherwise substantially affect the party's interest under the agreement. Um, so it basically says that um, each party shall has an obligation to notify if there'll be a material change. So if you say the denial benefits is a material change to the obligations under the contract, which um, you could are under the treaty, which you would say it is, um, then they have an obligation to notify because if you think about certain denial of benefits claim that only arise during the arbitration, then has the state really complied with the timeliness requirement yeah. of CAFTA um, because they didn't notify at the time or to the maximum extent possible um, that a, such measure would change the obligations. It's complicated for the state to do this. Like, um, I mean, one thing to do retroactively once a dispute has arisen, but it's kind of hard in advance to anticipate what kind of benefits you would like to deny and then notify the other state about that. Correct. And that is definitely the counter argument of the state is, do we have an obligation, kind of an affirmative obligation to keep track of all the companies in the world that we want to deny businesses to? Or if they incorporate a shell company, we have to immediately deny benefits because they're a shell. Um, and they shouldn't have to do that. But what they do have to do is after the, regardless if they notify, before you deny benefits, you have to have a consultation. So it means that, as I said, that a government agency of either sovereign meet and they say, hey, we're looking to deny benefits to your to this company that we think is a national of your country. Um, and then they can argue whether the identity of the company is or is not 
um, a national, considered to be a national of that um, country. The funny thing with this consultation is, is that it, it tends to be kind of this like bureaucratic exchange of formal letters that isn't really like two people sitting down and arguing over the nationality of ABC Inc., right? Mm -hmm. um, so how much does this consultation, is this consultation requirement, you know, how do you really fulfill it? And again, what does the state need to know at that moment? Because let's say the trigger letter is issued and then you have six months until some sort of initiation of the proceedings. Does, is there an obligation for the state under that at that point? Because now they have some sort of knowledge of a company that's bringing claim and benefits that can be denied. Um, mm -hmm. When do they have to do it then? Well, according to the ECT, which is, or no, according to ICSID, Article 41, they, there's an obligation to raise it as early as possible. Well, that doesn't get mm -hmm. you very far, does it? Um, but 41 does say no later than the expiration time limit fixed for the filing of the counter memorial. So those kind of two um, obligations to notify or to at least um, deny, actually deny benefits, um, it's not really clear whether you need to say as early as possible. Well, is it as early as possible at the time you knew that you were going to deny benefits, which could have been at the time of consultation? Or is it at the time of the counter memorial, and that's considered to be quote as early as possible? Um, so the PAC tri Rim Tribunal actually incorporated Article Forty One into the CAFTA Divinal Benefits Clause, and it agreed that El Salvador had timely invoked the clause. Um, and it said in its opinion, it's not apparent that El Salvador thereby deliberately sought or indeed gained any advantage over the claimant by waiting until March 2010 um, or August 3rd, 2010 for the invocation of the denial of benefits clause. So they go through some sort of analysis on the um, on whether there was some sort of prejudice to the other party in waiting, um, which I think is a valid um, assessment to make. Um, it be, when there is such, such uncertainty, since it isn't parent, apparent in Article 41. Um, and then uh, just one last word on the ECT, because the other question is, is this a jurisdictional objection or is this an objection that relates to the merits of the dispute? Um, well, the denial of benefits um, under the ECT has been argued only to relate to the dispute's merits, um, because it, according to you know the language of 17.1 and the heading of the article because it says non-application of part three, which relates directly to the substantive protections of the ECT. Um, so again, so it's admissibility. Crucial. So is that what it would be? Admissibility then as opposed yeah. to competence? Is that, yeah, okay. Yeah. So that there is an investor with an investment established. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. It's that the investor is not granted protection under the treaty uh, despite being an investor, I think. Right. Yeah, and there's a consent as well, I think. That's also yes. the thing. It's like there's consent to arbitration. And then to what extent is there consent to arbitration is then therefore an admissibility issue, I guess. That would yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, and talk about a, a topic ripe for um, further scholarship and, and writings because there's a lot of ambiguity, especially if, mm -hmm. you're, if you're dealing with like some sort of the repeat or some model BITs, um, you can have, you know... It's not a one-off. Each treaty is not necessarily drafted um, completely differently to the to each to any other one. So you can kind of get some trends in the model BITs, especially with the U.S. who kind of started. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, the U.S. ones are, are all. I mean, not all of them, but they're drafted in a certain language, right? Yeah. And I think the denial of benefits clauses, at least, are very similar. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's a, a very very difficult thing for um yeah, on either side. I think this is me being objective and not trying to take any side of, of the issue, but um, it's difficult on either side. And I think there's valid arguments on either side that the state shouldn't have that the requirement to keep up on the status of each investor and this and the substantial activity of the investment. But what it does do, sorry, the last point is the burden of proof um, mm-hmm. because you have the state. I mean, it's, if you qualify it as a jurisdictional objection, then technically the state has the obligation or the burden of proof to make that objection. But if the objection mm-hmm. is to deny benefits, then it's already technically made a determination on the nationality of the investor and the substantial business activity. Otherwise, it wouldn't have denied benefits. But if, but so then, but then technically, it's the investor's obligation to, or the burden of proof to prove its nationality. So there's a lot of burden shifting that could be argued on both sides of this, I think. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, I find it in, I find it interesting that there's no clear um, jurisprudence, at least on the timing issue of this whole thing, which is really important, right? Because yeah. if consultation is required, so at least okay, if you agree, depending on the terms of the BIT, that consultation is required, which would be, I guess, the reasonable position. It's like you at least need to notify the investor beforehand and try to find a solution. Or, and so the consultation would happen between the states. Like, so when does that, should that occur? Like yeah. before the notice of dispute, before the actual filing of the request? I mean, it's it's super important, right? I mean, so. Absolutely. And what should the state know at that time? Like if the state doesn't yeah. know anything and is just like, well, let's just deny benefits and we'll figure it out later, then you're mm-hmm. arbitrating a lot of a lot of work without even knowing what the answer is. But also. Also, from the investor perspective, like so, you have a claim against a state, and and so did the, the, you know you you file a notice of dispute, and you even have a request for arbitration, and during that entire period, they they haven't consulted or notified that they were denied benefits, and then they do it later. I mean, that's also weird. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, and it's not clear that that would be considered invalid, at least from what I understand from your presentation. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, and that's it's just ripe for for arbitrating. Guys, I'm actually in a in a hotel yeah. room and I, I I muted you, but I'm being thrown out of my room. Uh, oh, <laughs> so I, dear. I have to go find another room <laughs> in which I can open a beer and talk about happy fun time. Okay, let's sign off and we'll see you in another room. Yes. <laughs> okay. Don't forget to say. <laughs> All right, happy fun time. Different room for me, same people still. But we also, <laughs> <laughs> we got an email. Uh, we, we, we do get emails uh, every now and then, uh, but we don't bring them up on air. But this one we had to bring on air because it, it prompted a change of our happy fun time plans. Uh, it's uh, one of our loyal listeners, Saba Mulayan, who wrote several things, but uh, among them was the following. I have noticed a reluctance by mid-level associates working at law firms to move to another jurisdiction because they would effectively take on a more junior role. So, for example, I was told by a fourth-year associate in Australia that part of the reason they turned down a job in London was because they would be working as a second-year associate, essentially a bit of a demotion, even though the pay seemed better because London is London. This, I think, is true from my experience, but I have not shifted firms 
uh, at all, uh, nor between jurisdictions, the way both of you guys have. So it's perfect timing that Sadia is on now and we can actually address this with two people who have switched jurisdictions. What are your thoughts on this topic? Uh, just to quickly jump in to address this specific issue about the Australian moving to the UK, um, there seems to be some inherent bias against Australian uh, lawyers. Against uh, or in favor of? I, against. I talked to a... Really? I talked to a lawyer who was two years qualified at Linklater's and came over as basically a secondee, but then was treated as basically a trainee level. Um, and I, I think it has to do with also the way that the way that either jurisdiction is qualified, that Aust Australians claim uh, that they come out with a bit more of practical experience than say, um, or that they're, they're younger when they get their practical experience. I forget what it is specifically, so don't quote me on that. But when they come to the UK, it's like a generic demotion. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that is something to keep in mind for this discussion about the jurisdictions you're moving from and to um, could, yeah. could actually pay, play a role. Yeah, I also think it really depends on... So just by way of background, like so I moved from France as a French lawyer in arbitration in a French firm to an American firm in New York. So that was a huge leap in the sense that, um, I mean, leap in the sense that, you know, people, I think when you don't know, when the jurisdiction you're going to don't know your jurisdiction of origin, then then the bias comes in, right? So maybe that's, that's what I felt like. So if when I was talking to firms that didn't really know about the practice I was, was in or what kind of work I was doing they just assumed that I would not be like an American like a JD because I was an LLM sorry also that's the background thing so I'm a, I'm a LLM New York qualified lawyer at the time but not a JD and they make a huge difference between the Americans who've done three years of law in in you know in America as opposed to a French lawyer who's done whatever seven eight years of law plus a year in the U.S. plus double qualified or whatever um, and and you know and I've seen that I think it really depends on the firm and the team you're joining if mm -hmm. you're joining a team that's purely international and then knows that your work is exactly like the same or something then they would take you at the same level and I think in the UK I have had that question a lot from people who asked me that and I've noticed that. The English firms, maybe I'm wrong, but this is the impression that I have, and I've, I've seen it multiple times, the English firms, like the Magic Circle firms, they have their own way, their own process of recruitment, right? So you go to a training contract, and then your PQE, and this and that, so it's very, very formal, and recruiting laterally from someone who's not... Uh, it's not even just laterally through another English firm, but through someone who's not even qualified in jurisdiction, they need to put you into a box in the PQE system and they just don't know how to do that. So the, the safest option is probably just to put you, uh, to downgrade you, I think. Whereas right. if you move from Australia, wherever example it is and move to a firm that's in, that's American or not English, let me say that not English because <laughs> it's not just English or French or, or American, then, then I think, you know, the usually people are much more open. To that but it's not to, always to accepting you as is 
I, I'm obviously viewing this from the outside, but I, I sometimes get the impression that uh, even for bigger firms uh, where the arbitration teams have purely international caseloads and you operate on an international plane, and obviously to us in the arbitration world, it doesn't really matter if you're practicing out of Geneva or, or Singapore or Rio de Janeiro because you're essentially doing the same thing if you're working on large international cases. But even so, if you are looking at a career at that firm, you're also operating within the firm. And there are other teams and other partners who aren't international arbitration lawyers, typically, unless it's a, a boutique firm. But if, it, if it's a large, like, full-service firm, you also have to, like, fit in the box within the, the larger yeah. setting of the firm. And if you want to make partner, you have you need the support of the non-arbitration partners and you need to, like, follow the rules and procedures right. and do the whole song yeah. and dance in order to actually achieve success there, which is obviously much yeah. harder yeah. if you're qualified somewhere else and you, you uh, lateral in as a fourth year associate from a completely different jurisdiction. Even if the arbitration team adopts you, it might not necessarily be the case that the rest of the firm understands as well what you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the managing partner needs to give you the sign off and they might be a corporate person who has no idea why you're coming in. <clears throat> I mean, this, else, what? Who's this foreigner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why do you need him? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, it also yeah, has to do exactly. with the fact, like within the within the firm structure as well. Like, if you're getting lateral then quite senior, then they and that firm subscribes to an upper out policy. Then you basically uh, they don't know where to put you either because if they put you in as senior as you were coming in and you're expected to make you know, a partner up and out in the next year or so, you can't, and it's a huge firm with like 15 offices. Like there's no way you're gonna be able to meet yeah. everyone, make a name yeah. with yourself. Yeah, very hard firm. to hit the ground running in that context. Oh, you're, I mean, yeah. you're technically screwed. So they could demote you a year or two to give you like enough, you know, runway to be able to take off at the firm to continue my like analogy. But uh, <laughs> I don't, um, it, it, it is quite difficult. And there's, and sorry if this changes, the, the, the frame of the topic a little bit, but there's also bias against hiring laterals in general. Um, mm -hmm. Because I don't know if you've noticed this study, but it's like, why, you know, either you're lateraling because you're getting pushed out, you're lateraling because you couldn't cut it there. Why are you coming over and you're not part of the brand that we have created and how we write, how we draft, how we deal with things. So you basically need to be demoted to learn a little bit more about the firm. Mm, is that still mm -hmm. the case? That sounds like a 1970s well, yeah. when people were lifers and everyone say, stayed with a law firm forever. Yeah, I was going to say, Brian, actually, in my experience and also in all my friends' experience that have, I've seen laterally moved a lot, actually, in the, in, in, you know, in the last couple of months, weeks. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, really. It's, it's musical chairs. I feel, yeah, it is. It is musical chairs. And I can tell you that, actually, I think especially at a, at a level where you're senior, a middle, you know, senior associate or mid-level associate, it seems that a promotion from senior associate to partner is happening much more easier as a lateral move than it yeah. is organically through the firm. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't know if, if, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it is that people don't cut it or whatever it is. But it for me, it seems more like people are looking for for, uh, you know opportunities to practice in different because they change completely the outfit so they go right. from like a huge firm to like a boutique or they change jurisdiction like in my case it was because I changed jurisdictions and and so the firm didn't correspond to the jurisdiction that when I was in Paris I was a cheat when I was in New York I was with a, um, an American firm 
at Chetmoyan Park and when I was in London I was like okay I'm I'm gonna go with uh with an English firm because um you know at the time I was like okay I'm gonna try an English firm and then finally I, I rejoined a French firm but it was really related to the jurisdiction more than uh than than anything else and I do think that lateral move that I've seen from a lot of people in within the same jurisdiction has been if you change outfits then then maybe it helps you get promote it more you know faster or something so actually I, I don't think that the when you move at a I haven't seen it maybe it has happened but at a senior level from a firm it's really rare that uh, you see people accepting to go to another firm for at a lower rank and that, uh, that, that's, I mean, that's an interesting like, a general question which is I, I think also sort of implicit in, in Saba's email what to to what extent should you accept uh, a, a de facto demotion in order to move jurisdictions mm -hmm. of course if, if you're lucky you can leverage something into actually getting a, a promotion uh, in practice right. but I think I think that's that's rare especially mm -hmm. if you're more junior I, I would assume that you are you will, you have to be open to being slightly demoted if you move to a place where you're basically coming out of the right. How I, much of a demotion should you be able generally to to accept? Well, I think it's um it it really goes to the commercial reality of why you're moving because no one moves jurisdictions for like the the thrill of like moving around the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when or around the world, I should say, and then when you are looking, you. Um, are, you can't throw applications between Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Kenya, and yeah. Mexico City because you'll net you. It requires so much effort to apply for a job in a yeah. jurisdiction that you don't know that you. So you really have to focus. So, I assume that most people laddering between jurisdictions is either, for example, in Sadia's case, you probably went to get qualified, maybe. Um, no, actually, uh, it was because of my. Uh, it was because of the man in my life. You went for love, <laughs> and, was, and that's the biggest yeah. one, right? You're going for love, so. <laughs> You kind of have your hands yeah. tied behind your back. It's either you get a job and move <laughs> with a job. Um, you can't really like be on your high horse. But that being said, um, I would never take anything more than a demotion of like two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was actually very young. Like I had that conversation when I moved to New York and people like you got to accept, you know, um coming in as, as so at the time I was like I don't like I think I was a third year associate and people like you gotta accept to come in as a as a first year so when I say people it was when people I was talking about generally about making the move not the people I was interviewing with and but then so you were going, I, I you were mentally, to, to New York right where they in any event yeah. pay first years the way they pay six years right. in the rest of the world <laughs> yeah but then that's also Saba's point right even if you are paid more you are in a situation where you're more junior than what you were in the, your original team. So it creates frustrations, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, I mean, thankfully, I didn't have to make that decision. I, I, I was very lucky to, to be taken at the same level that I was in Paris. Um, but I, do, I don't know if I, it, it, I think it would have bothered me. Of course, you're paid more. But then, but then you maybe don't have the same level of responsibility and career development is a huge thing, right? So yeah. I think it depends how, how bad you want to make it in that new jurisdiction. If you're like, okay, I really want to have like a career in London, you know, I'm an Australian and you know, whatever it takes, I want to make my life there. I've got my partner there, whatever it is. And I guess, you know, if that's the rule of the game, then okay. What is one or two years going to change? But if, uh, come on, if it's not fair, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's not, you, you, 
we're, we're aren't we supposed to be an international market? Well, we're also <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a buyer's market, typically. You don't have a lot of leverage as the typical second or third year associate looking for yeah. a job in your jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah, what? maybe you're... Yeah, but Joel, I mean, how does this affect, um, you said that there is some intersection with academia. Yeah, I was basically saying that on the fly. I haven't thought that through at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, is, it, is it a buyer's market with like... No, but I think the same sort of logic applies that academia and, and specifically international arbitration academia is, of course, as international as international arbitration practice is. We all know that there are scholars involved in arbitration on an, on an international plane, but, it, but it's similar to the way you have to still make your career moves with the whole of the firm in mind as an associate you also have to make your academic career uh, with the general university environment or the faculty environment in mind and you need support from from you know senior people professors in other fields and there are very strict ways of moving up the ladder in the academic world as well and if you stay in one jurisdiction and you know you you develop your 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 connections and you make a name for yourself within the faculty then as soon as you move into a new place, there will be non-arbitration scholars there who will have some influence over your career advancement at the new place and you have to start over again. So although it's not, you know, one, two, three, four years the same way it is, it's still like doctorate, postdoc, whatever the formal titles are in the, in the, in the specific jurisdiction and you have to stick to that scheme. And if you're starting over, you're starting over. Mm-hmm. So but I think it, it's yeah. to, to a certain extent, unless you're very senior. But if you like, if you just did your PhD and you know you you went to all the academic, the board meetings and and talked to people at the faculty, and they like you and support you, and they would like to help you get funding or or a good position. If you move to a completely different jurisdiction, you won't have that. Ah, is there just, just a hierarchy of jurisdictions in the sense that, okay, well, they you know you have your PhD from this university, so you can go to a lesser known university and definitely get funding? I, I would say so, maybe within the world of arbitration. But again, that doesn't apply beyond arbitration, with the exception of like the major university brands. It doesn't really matter if you go to another place because they, they the the professor of criminal law in uh, in Belgium maybe doesn't know about the mids in Geneva, for example, or is is not aware of all, all these like signals and brands that we pay attention to in our in the very specific arbitration world. It it might be useless if you have to fight your way through a, a general university faculty environment in a foreign jurisdiction. Right. Interesting. Yeah. <gasps> but it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, how it's it's a very personal question, right? Is how um, how worth it is it? I mean, if if it's a different jurisdiction in the sense that you're not even qualified in that jurisdiction, then yeah, I mean, you you can't possibly expect uh, to be hired at the same level, even if it's an arbitration, and even if you're not going to be doing you know jurisdiction before the you know local courts. I, I think there's an understanding that if you're not qualified in that jurisdiction then you can't be on the market uh similarly as as those who are qualified i guess i guess that's fair yeah I think somebody so too. told me that that's fair yeah 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 as long as actually i think uh that you are still being an associate i know several people who have accepted to start over as paralegals 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Worked for years in, in smaller jurisdictions, then moved typically for love to larger jurisdictions where they're not qualified and the rules are too formalistic or the culture, at least, is too formalistic to just accept foreign associates like that. And then rather than them being demoted to a lower level associate, they have accepted to be paralegals instead because they moved not primarily for work, but for other reasons. And then, you know, anything that pays yeah. the bills that allows you to be with your loved ones might be worth it. Yeah, but that I would, I mean, again, like it's also a personal choice, but it's, it's really like, I wouldn't recommend in the sense that it's, I mean, you're a lawyer, you're an associate in arbitration. Well, I mean, paralegal is a different job. It's not like lesser of a yeah, job, a but it's just separate. It's, it's just, it's just a different skill set. And it's the same thing, like about all these, um, I've heard stories about foreign, um, I mean, foreign associates in the sense that they're not, you know, they're moving from a jurisdiction to another jurisdiction and they accept to have a contractor's position. Oh yeah. So they they have, you know, they have short-term contracts uh, as opposed to a long-term contract, but it's not even just the fact that it's uh it's not even just job securities that they're only called for certain projects or right. you know something like that. And that also like I just don't know if people it, it's I mean of course if you have no other choice and it's good experience then fine, but is it worth making the move for that? Uh, is a valid question. Yeah. Oh, the the things we do for love. Yeah, <laughs> the love of the game. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's true I was talking about actual love. I love for other people and things right. that aren't worth yeah. it. No, but it's. I think, Jun, you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head, and I do think that in this, in this, generally speaking, if people do move laterally, it is. Uh, a, a very big majority time of the time because of that, because of personal relationship and because they want to follow someone or or move uh, across you know countries and they're willing to make that sacrifice for that reason. What do you guys uh, yeah. think about laterals from different fields of law into arbitration? Ah, very mm, good I, question. I'm instinctively skeptical. <laughs> of course, but like, how do you, I mean, you clearly have to discount some sort of experience because they're working in something completely different. So they don't, they have no idea on how to make an exhibit list even. So then, but I mean, do they have to automatically start <laughs> down? That's so hard. That is so <laughs> difficult. To but that's, I mean, isn't that your first year <laughs> yeah. in any firm? Like exhibit lists and footnotes. Um, but, you know, if, I mean, clearly they have an intention of detail that they've like created over time, but, or, but like drafting narratives um, is I mean, not yeah, necessarily they're technically good at. So how would you, I mean, would you just demote them completely to a first year? No, of course not. This isn't, isn't the only correct answer, all joking aside, that you should be able to move later as, as long as you're not already super senior and you've already sort of specialized in something completely mm -hmm. different. Uh, maybe you would have to start over a little bit. But knowing other areas of substantive law very well could only be an advantage, no? And the, mm -hmm. so the sort of the tradecraft aspects you'll be able to figure out if you're a gifted lawyer who's already worked for a couple of years. Yeah, maybe if it was yeah. relevant to a specific practice like construction, real estate lawyer getting into no, construction. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like project, people in projects are, are, I've known, I have uh, numerous examples of people who have moved from a project finance department into arbitration. And they're doing wonderfully because, you know, they negotiated those treaties, uh, those contracts and treaties, actually. And then they're <laughs> the ones now saying, oh, no, <laughs> uh, how do you interpret it um, in arbitration? And it's just the exp experience that they had. Yeah, it's um, a big thing. So I think it could, they're welcome. Yeah, I, they're welcome. I, <laughs> <laughs> you're cool. You're cool. <laughs> 
I think it's a valuable experience. But then again, like, yes, I agree. I think it, there's a discussion to be had as to what level they come in. Um, and because there will be a learning curve because it's not their, you know, the, yeah. what they um, what they had practiced. But, but like you say, I think it goes very fast. And in one, two, three years, probably they can pick up stuff that you would normally learn in six years. Yeah, and years. also, yeah. let's be honest, how hard is arbitration after all? It's not rocket science. How complicated is it to, to figure out uh, what an arbitration is? <laughs> <laughs> right. How hard is it to make an exhibit list? How hard? Exactly. How hard is it to make a binder? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's that's what I did. Binder boys. We we are just glorified binder boys. All right. Should we? What are you? Sorry. Or <laughs> she's like, and another thing. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to keep. I'm, to... I feel like I'm the professor <laughs> in a seminar. I'm trying to keep this under an hour. It, it will never work out. <laughs> I was just going to say it's actually very hard to make a good binder. I'm just going to end it on that. And, yeah, and how to make a good binder the next time you on time topic. All right. With that, with that, I think from Copenhagen, Islamabad and, and London, Arbitration Station is, is checking out. Should we also, just for the record, encourage further emails? Yes. You might end up on yes. the, the fun yeah, time yeah, yeah. if you email to the arbitration station at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.